Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to this homework edition of the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen, and I am here with my wonderful co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. Hi, Sadie. Um, and as you guys all know, this uh, the homework edition of this podcast is where I instruct Sadie, or sometimes vice versa, sometimes she instructs me, but uh, we, we give each other pieces of media that we would not have been exposed to during our during our, our vastly different upbringings and we review them and we look at them from our from our own perspectives so this week um, is one that I am deeply excited for and one that I have been planning and really you know really happy to talk about for a long time um, and Sadie I was wondering if you would be willing to tell us what it is that you have been listening to Sure. So I've been listening to the album Graceland by Paul Simon. That is a wonderful thing for you to say right now. Um, and as you guys know, Sadie Carpenter was raised in the independent fundamental Baptist cult. And so this podcast, we talk about her cultish upbringing um, and various other related topics. And 
So today we are going to be talking about Sadie's first time ever listening to the legendary Paul Simon album, Graceland. Um, and I, I, you know, I, 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 you can hear in my voice, I could not be more excited to talk about this topic because this is an album that is very near and dear to my heart. But before we get into that, I just want to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. We work hard to bring you episodes every single week. And if you like our show and you want to support our show, you can go to patreon.com slash Leaving Eden podcast and chip in there. Uh, uh, subscribe to our Patreon. We have extended and uh, uncensored episodes available there. Uh, you can also share this podcast with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your mortal enemies. And what else do we have? Uh, if you, oh, you can join our Facebook group. It's called Eden Exodus. It's on Facebook. But that's enough of that. Uh, I want to know, Sadie, what did you think of this album? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you, uh, is it one of your favorites or were you just kind of like indifferent on it? So this was, um, this was an interesting one for me because this was something that I honestly had not been exposed to. And that was a little bit of a surprise, um, that I was so unfamiliar. I thought, um, there would be a couple songs on this album that I knew from just being a person. You'd never heard Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes? It didn't ring a bell. Now, Paul Simon's voice sounded extremely familiar. And I can't tell you what song of his I actually do know. It might have been some Simon and Garfunkel or something like that. That's probably it. I was also thinking, like, this sounds like something that, you know, these these songs and his voice and his solo style sounds like something that maybe I would have heard if my mom was listening to Prairie Home Companion or if my mom was listening to NPR. Um, really? Okay. Well, I had a very NPR centric upbringing. You know, uh, honestly, I heard a lot of so, NPR growing up. Really? So that is one thing that we had in common. Yes. I think, um, I, I don't, I was too young to know the difference between, you know, this is a, a liberal point of view or this is a conservative point of view or this is a centrist point of view or whatever. Um, so I couldn't tell you if my parents were like changing the channel if something came on that that conflicted with their views or uh, if they were kind of just letting it go by. I was I was too young to know the difference. But when we lived in Iowa, uh, my family had long drives to and from church and to and from school because, you know, in, in rural or semi-rural Iowa, a 45 minute drive to church is not considered a long distance. Because it's people, just something that you do. Yeah, it's just what you do. So living further from the church and living further from the school, that was what my parents listened to on the radio if they were if my mom was driving us home from school or driving us to school in the morning. Was really? that sort okay, of radio then. program. And I think and it gave me a, a love for radio, which I think maybe shows up in me being a podcast host. What do you know? Your upbringing uh, uh, prepared you for your uh, future career in more ways than one. I mean, I think I think so because I do love radio. But that's that's a that's a a, a digression there. As far as this album, um, I thought it was fun. I thought some of the songs I felt really resonated with me. Um, some of the songs I felt really didn't resonate with me. So it was very. Um, I wouldn't say hit or miss because there was only one or two songs on this on this record that I didn't like at all. 
Um, but I would say it was some some were a better hit than others. And then other songs on the record were just kind of like, yeah, that's a fun song. That's cool. Okay. Well, that's that's uh interesting take. See, for me, it's interesting to hear somebody listen to this for the first time and then you hear what their opinions on it are. Because for me, um, uh, in a future episode uh, that we've already recorded, but that we haven't put out yet, that you won't have heard by this time, I mentioned that the earliest thing that I can remember is sitting in the back of my parents' car, and we're going to the beach, and the Beatles is playing on the the car stereo. But th- it could vary. What like it, if circumstances were slightly different, it very well could have been this album that was playing on the car stereo and not the Beatles instead. Like that's how, that's how often this album was playing when I was growing up. This album was playing all the time. Like I cannot hardly remember a time in my life when I did not know every single song on this record. Cause what it came out in 1986 and I was born in 1993 and it was like my, like my parents loved it. Like my dad, when he was growing up, his favorite music was like folk music was like Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel. So, you know, Paul Simon goes solo. My dad's a huge Paul Simon fan. And, you know, my parents in the eighties, they were like going to see Simon and Garfunkel concerts uh, when they had that reunion tour. My dad would go see Paul Simon. My mom would go see Paul Simon. So that was like, this was like an artist that they really loved and this was the album that was really legendary, uh, is regarded as, you know, one of the most legendary albums of all time. So it's really fun for me to hear somebody, okay, this is what you heard, um, and this is what you thought when you first heard it. So this was kind of one of those um, soundtrack of your life records. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so yeah. so yeah, because now I'm thinking like, oh yeah, the soundtrack of my life record was um, the the fundamental difference CD. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but we'll I'm really <laughs> excited to eventually hear about that. Um, uh, all the, of our ex-Fundy listeners immediately laughed. I guarantee it. So uh, getting right into the Let's get into this uh, right here. because So I picked this album because, A, because it is a ubiquitous pop album, a, a very successful pop album. Um, and also, so the way that this album was made was Paul Simon went to Paul Simon was inspired by music by a tape of music that he heard that came from black musicians in South Africa in the 1980s. And uh, this was during a time uh, when it was apartheid in South Africa, a very brutal regime, a very uh, oppressive regime in which there was a minority white population, you know, ruling over the majority black population, the native population, just with an iron fist, incredibly brutal. Uh, And so he, he heard this tape of black musicians in South Africa. And he was just like, these beats of these, this music is just so infectious and he had to go to South Africa to collaborate with these musicians. So I picked this album because in one of our early episodes, I think it was the second episode, the we talked about how the IFB, uh, Sadie's cult, the Independent Fundamental Baptist cult, told her that music that came out of Africa was music that was like demonic, in some way demonic. Do you want to go into detail about that? Yeah, I totally can. So the the idea is that uh, the, the IFB wants to say that Western music is the standard and that 
uh, especially any kind of African music, and I realize that's a very broad category, um, is not the standard, um, which is racist just right off the top in so many ways. But the, the idea is that music uh, that's written in a 4-4 time signature that has emphasis on the first and third beats is correct. So that's, you know, most classical music. And music that has emphasis on the second and fourth beats is incorrect or wrong or will open up your soul to demon possession. Um, the IFB claims that those rhythms of the, the second and fourth beat instead of the first and third beat uh, emphasis come from Africa and were brought to the United States by slaves. So they trace back. We know that a lot of popular music comes from uh, music that, that enslaved people would make. And that that kind of became blues and jazz and ragtime and these other genres of music that eventually evolved into what we now have as pop music. But the IFB wants to, and, and some other Christian groups, will make that a, a sinister thing that um, when those enslaved people were still living in Africa, that their music was demonic. So they believe that many, if not all, people who live in Africa are possessed by demons and are worshipping demons. So that they would use that music to summon demons. And then when they became slaves and were brought to America, they continued to use that music culturally uh, to summon demons. And now that's become popular music. So that's a... Um, that's a primer on on the IFB's racist ideas about music. Uh, the the reason that they believe that everyone in in Africa is uh, cursed and also uh, summoning demons goes back to the the old ideas of the curse of Ham, which is something you'd have to go back to that second episode to to hear more about. Will you give us just a slight refresher on that? Oh, because sure. I know, like the second episode was a long time ago for a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. So the curse of Ham. Uh, is the scripture verse that was used uh, primarily, along with many others, but this is the primary scripture text that was used to justify slavery uh, in, the, in the, the South and to make Christian people feel okay about holding people as slaves. The, the Curse of Ham refers to the Bible story of Noah. Noah had three sons, all of each of which had wives. Um, and when God sent the Great Flood to basically push the big red reset button on his earth, Noah and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife were the only people who were on the ark with all the animals that went on the ark two by two. So when they when they got off the ark, Noah planted a vineyard and he made wine and Noah got drunk off of the wine that he planted. His son, Ham, depending on how you interpret the text, it the Bible, the, the King James Version said he saw his father's nakedness. So some people would interpret the text as just like he looked like visually saw his father naked, which is um a pro, it's prohibited in Jewish law. Other people would interpret that as he committed some kind of sexual assault on his passed out drunk father. It's not clear and people do interpret that very different ways. But regardless of what happened, Ham uh, made God angry with whatever that it was that he did. So his brothers Shem and Japheth 
covered their father's nudity. And when Noah woke up from his uh, being passed out drunk, God and Noah cursed Ham for whatever it was that he did. And they said that Ham would be a servant to his brothers, Shem and Japheth, and that that curse would go on to the third and fourth generation of Ham's descendants, and that his brothers would be blessed and that he would be cursed. People who use this verse to justify slavery use that phrase, he will be a servant of servants to his brethren, to these these people believe that Shem and Japheth's descendants became uh, Jewish people, became white people, became Asian people, uh, became Native American people, and that the descendants of Ham became African people. So they believe that that curse, even though scripturally it says it goes to the third and fourth generation, they believe that that curse is perpetual. And therefore, any person who has white skin is able to make someone with dark skin a servant to them. So any, that's the curse of Ham. That's how the scripture verse that was used as the primary source for why Christian white people before the Civil War, during the Civil War times, could satisfy themselves to think that, that what they were doing in um, holding slaves was okay. Yeah, so there I mean this is definitely just like a we want to do this thing and we'll just figure out any biblical justification that we can to do it. Like that that's that they're really grasping at straws here is what they're right. doing. And and I think it's super important that we understand uh the the idea of the curse of Ham uh as uncomfortable as it is to talk about and as clearly messed up and it's wrong bizarre. as that idea is. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's not like a, a super fun story to talk about, but uh, I think it's important that we understand that because this verse, um, the scripture passage and the way that people have interpreted it and the way that people have used it is foundational to a good chunk of American racism. So I feel like this is something uh, that that everybody should know about. But people don't know about this. I didn't know about this until you told me. No, people don't. And and so so a weird so that was like a long walk for a short drink of water, but a weird um consequence of that teaching being ingrained in people is that the IFB believes that that's that emphasis on the second and fourth drum beat or that any kind of quote unquote African rhythm is sinful and that it opens you up to demon possession. And that yeah. is a, a, a part of a lot of their beliefs about music. Okay, so this this uh, album is not just a. It's pop music, and pop music is bad no matter what. Uh, B. It's like directly like from Africa, so this music would have definitely been like absolutely not allowed in any way whatsoever. Like this music would have been wrong. Like you can't listen to this; you'll get possessed. Right. <laughs> And this album was everywhere. So um, the the third thing that I want to talk about here is uh, in an episode where we talked about your education. We talked about ACE, uh, Advanced Christian Education, this this uh, private company um, that 
was uh, that that was doing these uh, Christian education that's popular with uh, the type of school that Sadie was raised in and as as well as Christian homeschooling. One of the things that they talked about was that they had pro-apartheid propaganda within their education. And I want I want to take a look at that. Like what so what were you taught about South African apartheid when you were growing up? Why don't I pull up the quote about that? Yeah, why don't you pull up the quote about second. that? Because that was that's what I really uh you know, that was uh when you said that, that was one of the things that really inspired me to say, Oh, we should talk about this album. Because this album is, you know, very uh, uh tied up in all of that. Give me just a moment. I'm going to sort through the ACE document here and uh, see if I can find the quote about apartheid. Ah, I found it. Yes. Okay, so you found the quote. Uh, So what does that quote say? So this is what um, my high school textbook had to say about apartheid in South Africa. The apartheid policy – okay, quoting. The apartheid policy of South Africa is a modern example of this principle. Under the apartheid system, the population of 5 million whites controls most of the nation's wealth. If apartheid were done away with, the 20 million blacks, who are not taxpayers, would be given the privilege of voting. Within a short period of time, they would control the government and the means of taxation. The power to tax is the power to destroy. Heavy taxation could become a burden to the property owners who actually finance the government and provide jobs. Economics is the major reason that apartheid exists. Some people want to abolish apartheid immediately. That action would certainly alter the situation in South Africa, but would not improve it. So there we go. yeah, that I mean that hurt me to to listen to a little bit. Yeah, it hurt to I read. Mean, it hurt to read, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, mm, apartheid, uh, South African apartheid was. I mean, you know, if you, I guess I was. We were both born after the apartheid regime in South Africa ended. So, but like, is, I, so it was still in my in my high school textbook as like a current thing. So that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, they just didn't go in and change that. But, you know, if we... no, I wasn't aware that it was over until I was an adult. Ooh. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's a, that's what my textbooks had to say about it. And obviously, you know, we all know uh, or, or many of us know that apartheid did eventually, um, I believe, was it 1990, 1991, uh, came to an end due in large part to a massive international movement to really put pressure on this this really repressive and and you know terribly racist and violent government that that was you know basically keeping all of these people imprisoned uh this this majority native population imprisoned so basically so uh during the history uh of of this album basically Paul Simon heard uh, a tape of of it was called I think it was Jive Hits Volume 2 so it was these accordion jive records. This uh, township jive music is uh, what it was known as. He he heard this music, um, and he had a tape of it, and it was his favorite music to listen to. And so he decided, I want to go and collaborate with these musicians down here. And so in 1985, during you know the height of the violence of this apartheid regime, Paul Simon goes to South Africa to go collaborate with these black musicians uh, who are you know, living in this terrible situation. 
And there was, um, so I was reading about this album a little bit, and there was apparently a lot of controversy because uh, there was a boycott on South Africa, uh, which I just saw talked about in The Crown. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Oh, okay. Uh, let's go, you know what, let's go right into uh, talking about the music itself. Because, uh, so which songs on this album were your favorites? Which ones maybe you didn't like so much? Uh, I really liked The Boy in the Bubble. Oh, yeah. The, so the first one, We're Coming Out of the Gate, a really great track. I felt like it was a strong opener. But the 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 thing that I loved about that is that uh, this song, no, I am not going to cry on this podcast today. <laughs> this song uh, expressed that we can be living in times that are both wonderful and terrible. Um, I think this this song he talked about kind of some of the the practical effects of apartheid that he saw while he was recording this album in South Africa, talking about soldiers in the streets. Yeah, so that's what that's what you took from that. But he was also talking about um, the boy in the bubble and the baby that was given a heart transplant from a baboon, and he was holding those up as like as as um, miraculous or magical. And I thought what I got out of that is that that you know I think right now with the with the pandemic and everything <laughs> and everything uh we can tend to kind of think we're just living in times that are terrible and uh you know we're living through a time of pandemic and that has been difficult on everybody and some people much much more than others and uh but we're living in a time where a, a vaccine has been made that's pretty astounding how uh how quickly they were able to do that and uh that you know they've made some scientific ex- advancements uh like with like the laser that they shot you with to get the vaccine in you yeah that's true and it was not the jewish space laser that they shot me with uh, no just to let everyone know <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah no th- you th- haven't th- had your turn with the jewish space laser have you no, uh, you guys yeah. all better watch out when I do, though. But but I thought that was a, a neat thing to express because, like, I I can get caught up in thinking this time is terrible, but this is you know this time is terrible and wonderful and terrible yeah. and wonderful and and I thought that was a nice perspective. Isn't that isn't it marvelous? You know how a really good songwriter can come in and uh and make something that you know seems really relevant at the time, and then you go forward thirty thirty years almost. Mm-hmm or I guess more than 30 years now, but you go forward that many years and it's like, oh, wow, this still rings absolutely just as true as it did back then. And yeah, it feels so that song, really, yeah. That song, um, that song was, I don't know, I thought it was a neat message for for the times that we currently live in. And you've also mentioned before that you, that, you know, your parents would have an accordion laying around the house. So like, I do play accordion. Yes. <laughs> so the, like, did the accordion that you would hear on the album, did that really like, you know, spark your interest? Did that really light a fire for um, you? Did you enjoy that? I didn't. I did enjoy it. Uh, I thought whoever played for the album was obviously much, 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 much better than I am at accordion. Because I can, I barely play. I play accordion like, I play accordion like I speak Spanish. You know, I I, I have a little bit. I can do a little bit, and that's about it. I can play when the Saints go marching in. 
the guy who played accordion on that song um i i don't want to i might butcher his name here uh because he is he's not actually south african he is uh from the kingdom of lesotho which is fun fact one of three fully enclosed countries on the face of the earth the other two being vatican city and san marino but lesotho is a small country that is fully surrounded by south africa uh this guy's name is forere motlo heloa motlo heloa is is uh I, I believe i'm pronouncing that correctly i deepest apologize deepest apologies if i mispronounce that and that when like paul simon heard this song was like the at least the accordion part to this song was already a song that existed and so paul simon said i want you know to take this song and then make it into you know my song so he got this guy to come and play it and then he you know took the elements from that song that already existed sort of in the same way that people do sampling now is they'll take a piece of a song that already exists and recontextualize it so this was kind of a analog sampling yeah like early like early version of sampling and it's you know it's very cool but like i you know i watched a documentary on the making of this album before before we recorded this episode and i learned all sorts of marvelous things about it but you know like deeply talented musician um so what other songs about what other songs on this album did you like uh my other big favorite was the song graceland oh that one's really good uh, the lyric that stuck out to me there was the the hook of losing love is like a window in your heart. Everyone sees that you're torn apart. Yeah. Um, that hit me because I know somebody – I think people stay in bad relationships or just like less than ideal relationships or just like a fine relationship where you're just not happy because they feel like breaking up like is so painful or so shameful or so complicated that it's better to just stay where they are. Yeah, like, I know somebody who kind of serially does this. Um, so I that think we person- all know somebody who serially does this. Yeah, and that person um, really came to mind hearing hearing those lyrics. I thought that was a, a really a really good lyric. I think I always bring up it's the lyrics that I like because that's that's what I'm drawn to in music so much of the time. Well, if lyrics is what you're drawn to, then Paul Simon is the guy for you because I think that he is a great 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 songwriter and i am not alone in thinking that uh he is very talented so i I liked the song graceland and it made me think about um why have i why have i lived in the south for a good chunk of my life and never actually been to graceland i guess you've never been to graceland because you know elvis presley that was seen as sinful for your upbringing they would have never let you go to graceland well yeah but my parents would have taken us like, my parents would have taken us and just told us not to tell anybody in the church. They'd have taken by, you to Dollywood, too. By the Right. By the end of our years in the IFB, my parents would have just taken us to Graceland and been just like, hey, don't tell it. Don't post this on social media. Um, <laughs> but the, the other thing is that Graceland tickets are, like, ridiculously expensive. Um, So, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's now on my list of things that I want to see. Yeah, one of the things about that, about he, the way he kind of describes it is that he almost in the song is describing it as like an American like Mecca, you know, like that all of yeah, these and- people, you know, we're bound uh, uh, 
to, to, to Graceland. We're bound and, and Graceland, we will, we all will be received in Graceland. Right. Like and, an American Mecca, an American like Jerusalem, a place where you make a pilgrimage to. And I think that must have been an older perception of the place because that's not the perception that I've ever had of Graceland. Like what my what I've heard about it from people who have been there is that it's it's in the middle of it's not in an affluent neighborhood. It's in a, a very poor neighborhood in Memphis and that it's you know, you you go during the daytime. <laughs> Um, because the, you know, car probably gets smashed and grabbed at night. And I don't know how accurate any of this is, but that's, this is like the perception that people have of Graceland now. Uh, I've heard that the mansion is not in good repair. I've, you know, so I've heard. Well, Elvis has kind of fallen out of fashion, hasn't he? Right. Well, I think what's in fashion now is Marilyn Monroe. Uh, really? Yeah. I haven't seen people... much of that, but okay. See what I, my my feeling on this i think that that uh as far as celebrities from that general era go i think elvis has been replaced by marilyn i think um you know i read about people leaving lipstick marks on her so she's buried in a mausoleum and people leaving lipstick marks on the front of her grave and they have to come the 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 caretakers at the mausoleum have to come by several times a day to wipe the lipstick off because it, it wow. hundreds of people a day are leaving their lipstick marks on her grave. Well, they they're two of, you know, the biggest people from that sort of early age of the global celebrity. But Yes, but I anyway, think we're getting a little off track here. Uh, <laughs> surprise, Sorry. surprise. It's us doing a podcast. Yeah, we're talking about music and we're talking about pop culture. But I think I think that um that that's just my perception. Uh if you've been to Graceland and I'm wrong, let me know but that the this song definitely sparked my curiosity and i think maybe next time i'm seeing my parents i make might make the drive up to memphis it's only about six hours from where they live hmm. yeah so uh is it any other so those are the first two tracks in the album those are two tracks that you really liked what what were the what were a few other ones that you really enjoyed uh i liked you can call me owl oh that's a classic too that's a great one and i i was reading about uh the album and turns out they use some very interesting techniques for doubling the bass solo. So during yeah. the bass breakdown, the solo is p- played over itself in reverse. And um, as somebody who's a, a fan of math in music, uh, I don't think I didn't notice it when I was listening, but when I went back and read about it, uh, that was very neat. Um, but those were my those were my three big favorite ones. Yeah, can we uh, can we just for a minute though talk about the bass playing on this album? Because I think it made, it made the album. Yeah, so like every time I listen to this album, the bass parts on this album are so tasty. They are. So unbelievably good that the bass player uh, uh, that Paul Simon, basically the story is that he went down and he sort of just started jamming with a bunch of different musicians. And he eventually put together sort of like a band of people that he really, really liked playing with. And this guy, this bass player who he who who he picked to be part of his band, this guy's name is Bakithi Kamalo. Just every like. Every time that you hear, like he he shows up on almost every song, and just sort of a little bit steals the show, in my opinion. 
and just with the ah, uh, it's the the bass lines in the song are just so tasty. Um, See, I and, feel like you can tell that that people are enjoying making music together. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think oh, that's yeah. very obvious listening to this. Yeah. So which ones were so uh, songs that you maybe didn't like so much? Which so, ones did you not like so much? I feel like I'm gonna have to just duck from because the 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 song that i really did not like on this album was the one that may be the most famous which is diamonds on the soles of her shoes you didn't care for it uh the the harmonies of the the uh, all men group singing acapella. you mean uh, lady smith black mambazo yeah at the beginning like the the intro where it's just a a, a bunch of men singing acapella didn't um, care for that part no but it, it was triggering um <laughs> Really? Oh, for yeah, for why? Because the acapella men's groups are a huge thing within the IFB. Oh, and like, okay. This, I thought I thought this would be like an interesting thing to talk about because I don't talk uh super super much about my like my personal triggers on this podcast. What I thought was valuable to bring up about this particular incident, where I'm just like listening to a, an album and all of a sudden I'm like, oh boy, that was not great. I thought what was worthwhile to bring up is that there are many days of my life where the intro to this song would not have triggered me or bothered me at all. Uh, it's just uh, sometimes there, and there are many days in my life where it would just hit me the wrong way. And uh, I just thought I would put that in there because I know a lot of our listeners do have uh, some kind of PTSD or um, can get triggered by things that remind them of their past and i just wanted to you know kind of share a little bit of of that of my experience with that because sometimes this would not have bothered me and you're in an emotionally heightened state like naturally because of you know you are you are eight months pregnant you, i am you're, almost nine months pregnant yes <laughs> your organs are in the wrong place That's i, I can confirm that yeah. none of my organs are in the right place. <laughs> you're, you're you're always like everything, you know, everything that you do, everything that you listen to is going to affect you. You know, your emotions are going to be times 10. That's just a, right. a product of, 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 of think, physiology. And yes. there's nothing that you can do about that. And I thought it was important though, to, to express to those of our listeners who are kind of in the same boat as me, who do have, PTSD or do get triggered um, by things that remind them of the IFB that sometimes things just randomly get you and that's normal and that happens to me too and uh, sometimes what randomly gets you might be our show and that's okay and you can you you, you can you know you you have permission to deal with it and take care of yourself we love you and we care for you and we're here to support you even if what we say ends up being triggering for you to right. listen and, to and you know sometimes Sometimes these things happen out of the blue and you can feel I I sometimes feel a little bit guilty because it's well I should be over this or I you know that is such a small thing and such a, a harmless thing uh, does that make me a weak person if I'm triggered by something that is that is so externally harmless and I wanted to share some of those feelings because they they came up for me while I was listening to this album just to let any of our listeners know, if you're experiencing the same thing, you're not alone. Um, it's not silly or trifling. You know, what what gets you is what gets you. It's okay to take stop and take a break, take care of yourself, and you're going to be all right. So I take it that also Homeless was not one of your favorites for that same reason. 
I think that one had different harmonies. That one didn't get me. Really? Okay, so yeah, you, I didn't did you like, like Homeless? You liked Homeless. Uh, I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was in a good enough place to go back and kind of try to figure out what song the intro to Diamonds sounds like. Yeah. Uh, it, I probably could. I just didn't feel like pushing myself today. Well, I, you know what? I think it's a massive travesty that the IFB has uh, ruined this amazing Paul Simon song for you. Uh, and that's just one of the other atrocities that they have committed, <laughs> aside from all of the 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 sexual abuse on uh, young, innocent people, aside mm -hmm. from the brainwashing, aside from the violent physical abuse of children and the terrible political influence that they have on this country. They have ruined Paul Simon's Graceland for you. You know what? Partially. That's, like, that's, a, that's another thing, though. Like, sometimes you find you, – sometimes you find something that got taken from you because of this. And that, that, uh, that sucks when that happens. Yeah. But that's something that happens to, to all of us. Who who come from bummer. the background? Yeah, because but I, I think love you this so much, and it. I want yeah. Well, see, that's so. The, I guess the songs with Lady Smith Black, Lady Smith Black Mombazo is the name of the the vocal group that was. It was performing literally on those songs. just that one song. Yeah. Just it's, that one song, and what I'm guessing is that the chords, like the heart, the specific chords that they are singing, probably sounds like some song that I used to know that I didn't pick up on. Really? Okay. That's interesting. Because like, and you just fine. weren't prepared for it. And you just weren't prepared right. for it. Right. So you couldn't just like get in your head and be like, okay, I know what I'm about to listen to. Let me eventually prepare for it. Yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit about that vocal group though. Uh, they're called Lady Smith Black Mambazo. Uh, and their leader was uh this man named Joseph Shabalala, who sadly died about a year ago. Um at the ripe old age of 79 years. So he lived along and, and uh, I guess much of his life was living under an oppressive regime, but for the later part of his life, for his last 20 or so years, you know, he was a successful musician or, or 25 or so years. He was a successful musician who, uh, because, you know, his vocal group that he was the, the founder and leader of was, featured so heavily on this Paul Simon album and they're uh singing in I I guess there is this Zulu tradition of men's vocal groups that are similar to this and because his group was featured so heavily on this album it led to that group getting a massive international music career and you know they were per they would perform all over the place you know and they won Grammys they would tour the world just by themselves not even mm -hmm. with Paul Simon um and you know, and, and really a lot of people in the world became exposed to this kind of music and they're like, oh, wow, this Lady Smith Black Mombazo, they're really great. And, you know, they would record with other artists as well. And it's it, it ended up being a great thing for them. But and, you know, uh, I remember seeing them on Sesame Street when I was a kid. Yeah, I feel like I remember um, having heard of this group in other places. I can't place exactly where. Yeah. But I, but oh, I do feel killer. like I've I've heard of them in many other places. Absolutely. So, uh, so you maybe you didn't care for the ones with uh, Lady Smith Black Mombazo on them so much. Uh, I guess Diamonds you didn't care for. Homeless you thought was all right, but it wasn't your favorite. Uh, which other ones did you were maybe not your favorites? 
Uh, so this the songs that come on the back half of the album, I feel like my my focus was broken by uh by Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. So I feel like I don't have as much to say about the back half. So a lot of those were kind of just like, oh, yeah, that was fine. It was, yeah, it was fun, whatever. So you um, couldn't really get into the deep listening. Right. But I did have something to say about I Know What I Know. Um, did you like I, that one? I liked the counterpoint. It was a little bit Bach, which is uh, – and, and and as a pianist, um, if my high school piano teacher happens to be listening <laughs> – that lady forced me to play Bach counterpoint inventions uh, and and Oof. Bach pieces, and I hated it, and I hated it, and I was I gave her so much attitude about not wanting to do it her way and not wanting to play those pieces at all, and I <laughs> gave her an unbelievable amount of attitude, and now those are the pieces that I play for myself more than anything else because I've kind of like, you know. Goodness gracious, 14 years, almost 15 years after I learned my first Bach piece. Uh, now that's what I play for myself all the time. Yeah, well, but, it's really it's really good music. It's like very foundational. Right. But, but when but you're I, here in harmonies, yeah. I really, I think I've grown into um, enjoying counterpoint more and more over time. I've always been attracted to to things that are that are a counterpoint. Um but the the older I get, the more I love it, and the more I, that's what I want to play for myself when I just sit down to to play music for myself. Um, so, and this song I thought was the most had the most counterpoint between the different instruments, uh, the little repeating sections that that kind of overflow and overrun each other. Um, I, I like thought the, that oh 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 like that, might that part have been um, yeah might have been compositionally my favorite song. That's on the fun. Okay, so you want to know what my favorite part of that song is? I I just love those backing vocals. Uh, See, that's my um, least favorite it, part on the song because it makes it harder for me to hear the instruments that are doing like cool mathematical stuff that I want to focus on. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's that's so funny because see, um, it's just so funny that we listen for different things in the music. Like I'm, you know, when I listen to music, I'm just like. Uh, I, I want to hear somebody who I, I want to hear somebody who knows what their sound is and doing that sound in a really killer kind of way. And so when I listen to this song, you know, what I'm, what I'm listening for is the, so the this was the song was based on a song uh, by the group General M.D. Sharinda and the Gaza Sisters. And they're, they're this, uh, I guess, the South African uh, singing group, uh, the South African band. And so that's who was singing the backing vocals on it. And, you know, maybe, you know, if we listen to it from like an ear that's used to listening to Western music, uh, you were like, oh, that sounds a little bit out of tune. But this is like the sound that they're this is like their sound. This is like their traditional sound. And so for me, I hear somebody that's like, we know what kind of music that we're doing. And like we have this sound very specifically. We are really like everything that we're doing is rooted in our identity. and then just done very well and so that that's something for me every time i hear it i'm just like dancing along to the ooh 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 that part of it I'm, right and i like feel like i almost part. um kind of automatically tuned that out really uh, because well because of the way i was raised i was raised with a lot of instrumental music around uh and i was 
raised without a lot of these more complicated rhythms, without the type of rhythm that you find more often in popular music. So what my brain is kind of primed to listen for is the is two or more instruments that are playing off of each other. And I'm kind of seeing my husband. And so my husband thinks I'm totally crazy every time I say this. But when I hear music, I'm seeing the sheet music in my head. Like a like a piano roll. Interesting. So I am trying to put together uh, what the sheet music. So I can I close my eyes and I'm literally seeing the black and white sheet music. And I'm my brain is trying. <laughs> and that's not how this music is supposed to be. <laughs> I know, but like that's just like what I was primed for, you know, being a classical musician growing up and with the kind yeah. of music I listened to growing up. So like my first thing is my brain is trying to make the sheet music. So it's it's going a million miles an hour of like, okay, what key is this in? And what are the chords that's being played? And okay, the bass is looking like this. And okay, I'm hearing the accordion do this thing with these chords. So, and I'm literally seeing black and white sheet music in front of my eyes. Really? Okay. I think that it's so funny that that can be one of our, that both of us can have that same song as our favorite song, but or one of our favorite songs, but for different reasons. Uh, I mean, for me, you know, I just really enjoy the, 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 almost the chaotic nature of it with, with all of that, but it just feels so a little chaotic, but very joyful. Oh, see, I'm not comfortable with chaos for the most yeah, part. See, no. I, I, like my brain needs to find order in everything. Who knows? You know what? Maybe you'll maybe you'll revisit this album in a few years and you'll find that you've maybe been able to acclimate yourself a little bit more. Oh yeah, like you never know what your what your brain's gonna do. Brains are brains are weird. Brains are cool. Brains are awesome. But I think that's why I can write music with you, um, because I can't write music with my brother. Uh, my brother is an incredibly talented musician, but he's closer to me on that spectrum. Like he's um, more about the technicalities of how chords work together and and the, the music theory behind how things work. And the two of us, like I can play music with him and have a wonderful time, but I don't think the two of us could ever compose something together. I think that would be a disaster. See, that's funny because I feel like I can write music with you really well because when I come up with an idea, you're like, okay, well, let me like hash this out specifically. Like I want it to sound this way. Like this. I'm like, exactly. oh, okay, well, like you I, just... had, I had a general idea and you were just like, oh, well, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> right. Because you can just give me a general idea and then I can, you know, spend five minutes glaring at a keyboard and then I can tell you where all the chords go. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's just so interesting because, you know, on an album like this with this uh, with uh, this sort of township music that was coming from uh, South Africa, uh, you know, maybe the harmonies, the vocal harmonies wouldn't be super tight. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is, is, you know, the full richness of the sound and the emotion and the, the you know, the power and the words of the sound. But for you, you're like, oh, the, the harmonies are a little bit like off from each other, but like, you know, it's difficult for you to see that that's the point. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not like I'm judging it or like disliking the fact that the harmonies are, are different from what I'm used to. It's, it's just, just difficult that for I'm to trying to analyze it. It's not that like it's not that like I'm, I'm viewing it as bad. It's just that like I'm viewing at I'm viewing it as, you know, that's hard to analyze. Yeah. Okay, then. Wow. Okay. That, this this ended up going in a very different, interesting direction than I thought that it was going to go to. But that's great. I think this kind of turned into a, yeah, an, an analysis of how we listen to music differently. 
But you know what? An album like this, where it has so many different elements coming into it, that's a great way to look at how different ways that we... Because we can both get a lot of enjoyment out of listening to the same album, but for completely different reasons. Right. So, I, I, I kind of analyze everything because I'm, I'm just, you know, while we're talking about this, I'm thinking about listening to, you know, super heavy metal music with my husband and to try <laughs> trying to uh you know sit there and teach him to uh direct like a like a band director would <laughs> with the proper <laughs> okay no well if it's 12 8 you use this hand this hand shape and you use nobody's this ever hand conducted metal <laughs> except for me <laughs> because i haven't i've been teaching <laughs> So, so like I, I analyze yeah. it's not just this I analyze everything that I listen to even when I totally don't need to <laughs> but I'm sitting there literally listening to Slayer and I'm like okay so this is what key it's in and this is how you <laughs> this is how you you know compositionally analyze Raining Blood by Slayer. So we're uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna move on just a little bit because okay. uh, we brought up lyrics a little bit earlier, but you mentioned that lyrics are the main way in which you listen to music. That that that's the first thing that you're gonna be listening for is the is the lyrics. And I want to know what you thought about this album lyrically, because a lot of because you know he went to South Africa to make this album with these musicians that are living under this oppressive regime. But for the most part, the lyrics on this album, maybe there's a few exceptions here for the most part, the lyrics on this album are not overtly political. I thought the lyrics on this album were kind of an empty box. And um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm going to try to explain that. I'm going I'm to do my best. The The lyrics on this album, so they weren't a black hole. Okay, so so the Beatles song, I Am the Walrus, that's a song where the lyrics are a black hole. Like they don't mean, they mean everything, but they also don't mean anything. It's just some nonsense. It's just like some nonsense and then your brain makes of it what it's going to make of it. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about with the lyrics on this album. It was more of they're an empty box. Like there is a substance to them. Like there is a box. Like that is a real thing. But also there's a lot of room for interpretation. And like that's what you choose to put in the box. Am I making any sense at all? Yeah, you're making okay. you're making sense to me. Uh Okay, well, that's that's what matters. Everybody else can listen or not listen. I don't care. Right, because, you know, the subject he's talking about all sorts of subject matters like with uh, and the subject matters that oftentimes he's talking about uh, are not necessarily to do with the situation in South Africa. They're to do with something that he's experiencing in New York or something that he's experiencing in, I guess, in Graceland or something. That Yeah. And he will kind of like the other thing I noticed that he will kind of go. He will he will go into something that's more of a topic for a minute. And I think this happens a lot in Graceland. So I'm going to look up the lyrics really quick. Right. So in, in Graceland, he talks about a little bit about the breakup. Probably, I think he's probably referring to the breakup with his ex-wife. Um, yeah, I think that was Carrie Fisher. What? Princess Leia. Oh, my gosh. Is that true? Am I right about that? I don't I might think be so. I thought it was Patty that. something. But he might have been married to her uh, later. Like, who knows? Anyway, um, 
no, he's talking about the the a breakup and and it seems like with his with his ex-wife. She comes back to tell me she's gone as if I didn't know that. And he's he's going on off this like kind of this tangent about as if I didn't know. And and he almost digs into the pain of that breakup that he's talking about. And then all of a sudden on a dime it turns back to I'm going to Graceland. <laughs> Yeah. And like the song changes. So I feel like um several times on this on this album he almost digs into something really deep or something really meaningful or something that could be political or something that that could be uh philosophical and he'll hint at it and he'll make you think that that's what he's about to go into and then he'll turn on a dime go back to the theme of the song. And that's what I mean by an empty box. Because he he, Where he'll, su- he'll suggest it something right, but then he leaves it empty, because in the end it's about he leaves it up to the listener to fill that in. Yeah, what the listener is going to put in the box. That's an interesting take. I I really like that take. I got to say, I really like that take. Um, I just noticed that he did that lyrically like so many times throughout the album that I feel like it had to be intentional. Yeah. And, you know, if I like I mean, growing up, I would listen to I mean, Paul Simon was a staple of my upbringing, whether it be Paul Simon solo or like Simon and Garfunkel, like Paul Simon all the time. And so that's like I'm very familiar with his music. That's something that he does very, very well when he's writing music, when he's writing songs. Uh, You know, he, he has a way of describing so, uh, of describing something uh, that he's looking at or describing something that he's experiencing, th- like in a very physical or literal sense. And then without really specifying it, it ev- it's evoking a feeling in you that when you're looking at that, you're feeling the same way that he is feeling. And that is something that people who are great songwriters do very, very well. Yep. I was going to say that's that's truly an art. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the the lyrics themselves are, in a few cases, you know, they are referencing a, uh, uh, the political situation that was going on in South Africa. Uh, but in most of the cases, they're not. How, how do you feel about that, considering the, you know, contentious nature of this album? I, I felt like just putting myself in his shoes... Uh, I felt like maybe that was an, an an effort not to be overly appropriative. Like you think? Maybe, I think maybe he. I don't thought, think that's a bad take. I think that's I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe he thought he was saying enough and making enough of a statement by the way that he recorded the album, which was extremely controversial. Uh, recording it in South Africa. Uh breaking the boycott but also using black musicians on his record i think he thought maybe he was saying enough with that yeah that to i thought maybe he thought that to make a an overt political statement about the state of south africa on his record with his lyrics with his own words i think maybe he thought that would be overkill or come off as pretentious or come off as, as if he were appropriating those people's struggle or trying to center himself. Right. I think maybe he thought he did enough by recording it the way that he did and that he 
he you know thought to do anymore would be overkill that was just that was my take right and also what else is a guy what is a guy like paul simon gonna say about apartheid that nelson mandela or desmond tutu hasn't already said right exactly like exactly like what right what could he possibly be adding to this situation right okay so that um that's like a good way reason, for us to like the same reason that we need to like, you know let black community leaders speak more about black lives matter and kind exactly, of just be, be supportive and be to... voice amplifiers because like there are there are few valuable things that you or i can say about that that somebody else couldn't say much better than we could yeah i i, I definitely agree with that point that you're making right there and that um, that's a great way for me to lead into what I think a lot of the real meat of this album is, is the way in which it was made. So just a quick history lesson for those listening um, during, I, I believe uh, during the 1980s or in 1985, when this album was recorded, South Africa was controlled. They were, there was a white minority that was ruling the country um over you know a black majority and the white man the white minority was ruling over them with an iron fist there were all of these laws that were basically saying you can't be here you can't be there uh if we catch you in this city in this time you know you will be arrested um you know it, there is brutal excessive you know brutal policing a lot of violence coming from the authorities a lot of you know just massive disenfranchisement of the you know of really the majority of the people and they were living under these you know these deeply violent you know there was all of this racial tension there was all of these very oppressive circumstances that were there and so the united nations um the united nations instituted a full boycott of south africa so that meant like no importing of goods from South Africa, you know, no normalizing of relations with uh, politicians from South Africa, no working with artists from South Africa. So and this ban was supported by uh, the the I guess it was the the party in exile, uh, the African National Congress, which was, you know, the the anti-apartheid party. But they were exiled, you know. I believe that they were made illegal in the country. So Paul Simon gets this music. He's listening to this music and he's really enjoying this music. And he says, "I want to go make this kind of music with these people." He goes to South Africa, which ended up breaking the cultural boycott. Um, and the details of whether he was, you know, whether he was allowed there or not, are contentious because. He did not ask permission from the African National Congress to go there and record with these black musicians that were the ones who were being oppressed. But he did ask permission from the musicians union and the musicians union invited him to come and play with them and and play with them. So there was there's a bit of two sides to, you know, whether he should have gone, whether he should not have gone. Right. And I think what's important to note here is that um, the United Nations uh, was attempt the the idea was that we're going to boycott South Africa and and you know take away their place in the world economy and that is going to make them uh, quit committing human rights violations and get rid of apartheid. 
Like that was yeah. that was what they were thinking. But the 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 other side of that story is that the sanctions and the boycott on South Africa didn't just affect the ruling class of white people. It also affected everybody who lived in that country. Right. So, so even if Paul Simon says, I'm only going here to work with these black musicians to play their traditional folk music. Um, he's still, still technically saying, in yeah. violation of the boycott and the sanctions. Yeah. But also like that boycott and sanction it is now negatively affecting the very people that, that we are trying to help with the boycott. And so it's a, it's a ethically very interesting situation. Yeah. So he, so in the history of this album, he goes down there, he records a bunch of music with uh, all of these really wonderful musicians. Um, he goes back, he, he leaves South Africa um he says, okay, there's a few things that we need to do. We need to, uh, so he brings some of these musicians out of South Africa to go record with him um, either in New York City or he brought some of them to London as well to record at Abbey Road Studios. So he's brought uh, these people out of South Africa, uh, at least, you know, for the time being to record and to, to, you know, to work. And so that all gets done. Eventually, they put the album together uh, from the sessions that he had uh, in New York and in London and in South Africa, uh, you know, combining all of those together, you know, with all of those takes. The album comes out. It's extremely popular. Three weeks go by and there is suddenly this huge, 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 huge blowback against Paul Simon for breaking this cultural boycott. And there's all sorts of people who are saying all sorts of things about Paul Simon, you know, saying that he is tacitly supporting the apartheid regime by making this album, by uh, going to this country that he is, uh, you know, that he is not committed to the idea of fighting apartheid, that he is um, in, being involved in racism, that there is no way that the fact that he is a person who is, he is a powerful white musician and is going, it was seen by some as, Oh, he was taking advantage of these poor black musicians in this country. Which um, certainly doesn't seem to have been his intention. No. I um, mean, and I, if you, who could, you, you can't know what somebody else is intending or thinking that's certainly not how it came off to me, but right. And if you look at the, the way that he made the, he, everybody who was, uh, who worked on the album, they, he paid them three times scale for, you know, so scale is the sort of going rate is seen as mm -hmm. the going rate for what you make. If you were like a session musician, he paid them three times that for the work that they were doing. And if they had a hand in, in writing one of the songs, or if it was one of their songs that he sort of took and recontextualized to be one of his songs, they got the songwriting credit for that song. So, uh, so there was shared songwriting credits for all of these, for all of these songs that, uh, which really is took. a must. Like if he hadn't done yeah. that, we would be talking about this album in a very different way. Yeah, that would have been extremely exploitative if he had not done that properly. Because yeah, like I think I think you know the amount that he he paid them three times scale, like that's important, and that was a, a very nice gesture, and I, I understand why he did that and the meaning behind it. But I think yeah, you have that to make sure everything's on the up and up. Yeah, but that would be completely useless if he hadn't given proper songwriting credit i think the the yeah. songwriting credit is actually a bigger deal here 
Yeah, for yeah, for me. Uh, but you know, there's all sorts of people on this album who played it. You know, who were maybe in the bands that he was playing with who didn't end up. Who who you know they played with him and they ended up on the record, but they weren't one of the writers, so they didn't right. end up getting a writing credit. But they also still got uh, paid uh, the money that they were owed. Uh, right, they so, they're both important. But so from at least from uh, if you're a musician going musician to musician from that perspective, that was done ethically. The question is whether or not he should have gone to this country to begin with. And uh, this is also worth noting that uh, the musicians from this album, the ones that that are that are living, it seems at least from what I've seen, they have a good relationship with Paul Simon now. I think he would have been perceived more positively if it weren't for the Linda Ronstadt kind of kerfluffle. Oh, yeah, I that he had that... Linda Ronstadt sing on the song Under African Skies. And she than... had had some South Africa controversy just a couple of years before. Um, oh, see, I didn't know about that. Oh, okay. So what happened What what, what happened was um, she was misled, possibly, or misinformed or something. But the what happened was she sang at a resort that was a resort for white ruling class South Africans. It was, was not it within, in South Africa. No, it was. It was in so so here, the the article that I read compared the area that she was in to like a an, a Native American reservation in the United States. Like, is it in the U.S.? Yes, but is it the same as being in the U.S.? Not quite legally okay so she sang at this in this resort area and what people think is that she was told that this is not south africa she was told oh this is this other country or this other region that's not legally south africa so she was misled or misinformed or something and she sang at this resort that is technically within south africa but not technically legally south africa so there was this controversy about did she or did she not break the boycott against South Africa? So she got in all this all she got all this flack for doing this this concert. And she did her she did her homework. She called black musicians that she knew and she was like, "Hey, is this appropriate for me to sing at this place?" And they all told her to go for it. So she tried. You know, yeah. did she do enough? I have no I, I no idea. But she did try <laughs> to make sure that she was being appropriate. But anyway, it turned out that she, sh- you know, probably shouldn't have sung at this at this concert. But she may or may not have actually known that. Anyway, she got all of this controversy over it, and it made her look really bad. And she was the singer that he, yeah, she she was the singer that he sang. There's a song on the album "Under African Skies," which is a beautiful duet. But he sings it with Linda Ronstadt as the. Uh, and some people, as- yeah, some people perceived that as him kind of being flippant about the what she did uh or or him being too casual with the whole thing and i think people took that as a sign that he didn't really care about the boycott yeah so it kind of got it kind of choosing her to be the solo or the the person who did the duet with him on under african skies apparently delegitimized what he might have otherwise gotten away with more easily yeah okay that i mean that makes perfect sense to me but so that's what happened with that (laughs) so with this album um and i hate 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 to use these words um 
that uh you know what it was it, it came out uh and then this is an example of and I hate 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 to use these words but quote unquote cancel culture. What you're telling me that this isn't just a new thing that that has only happened like since 2010? Yeah, I mean I mean how is it different, you know, since I mean, what? The, I remember when the Dixie Chicks said that they hated George Bush and then they got all their songs pulled from a country radio or when um, in the early 90s, Garth Brooks came out and said that he supports gay marriage and got all his songs pulled from country radio or Elton John came out as gay and then all of his songs got pulled from radio, you know, like the. You know, they, like so, this album was massively controversial. Uh, at least there was a huge controversy under it, uh, around it, and so there's all of these questions, you know. And I can't say whether one, whether it's right or wrong. Um, especially now, I guess it's kind of a moot point now that apartheid is over, so you can't really like hold it against Paul Simon for not upholding this because it's like a, a not even an issue anymore. See, I think that it's not our place to try to sit here and say oh this was right this was wrong because we're not experts anyway Um, i'm with you 100 percent on that but i think it's important to i think it's you know valid to study what happened like why there was a controversy because that's more interesting i think that so many people they have to have an opinion about everything and they have to sit in judgment of like, oh, Paul Simon did the right thing or he did the wrong thing. And especially if you're a public figure, you're expected to have the right opinions about everything. So you end up with a lot of celebrities. Yeah. And that's so exhausting. Yeah. You end up with a lot of celebrities, you know, who, you know, they don't like they have not done research into a lot of these issues that they're talking about. And then they talk about them. And then people are like, actually, like, you're like completely off base here. And, and then, then they like, have to do an apology video. <laughs> then they have to do an apology video and they don't know what or then their apology video also doesn't get to it. And then they're just like, you know what? I'm going to take a break for social media for three weeks. And then they come back and <laughs> pretend it didn't happen. But like, that's sort of that's sort of what goes on. That's um, exactly it. And I think rather than having to have an opinion, like I, I do not feel at all compelled to tell you if Paul Simon was right or wrong. Um I can tell you I love this album. (laughs) I almost feel like it's none of my business. I do feel – I feel like what's so much more interesting is understanding the complex issues that surrounded the making of this album. And I think the more that you understand about history, uh, the more that helps you contextualize things that happen in your present. And I think that's actually useful, much more useful than my, like, bullshit opinion on whether Paul Simon is right or wrong on something that he did, what, 35 years ago. Yeah. And so I think that like this is a literal example because like when people use the term, quote unquote, politically correct, like so often we hear hear people be like, oh, it's not PC, not politically correct in reference to somebody saying something like, you know, aggressively and intentionally like racist or sexist or homophobic under the under the 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 cover of trying to be provocative or whatever. I, I don't know. I I think this is a truer form here because right here we have what is a very large looming political campaign um, or at least like a political strategy, which is intended to advance this agenda. Um, And the agenda, of course, you know, ending apartheid is good, whether or not the strategy itself is the right strategy. You know, I'm not a political like 
like I'm not a politician. I'm not a political expert. I can't say whether that's right or wrong. Um, like, but there, there'll be like a broader looming ideology and maybe an artist bucking that ideology is often seen as harmful or as malicious or as, you know, uh, as, as intentionally, you know, going against what is the right thing to do, regardless of the specifics, regardless for of the specific reason. And I think that's a better example of being provocative than just being like, oh, stop policing comedy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I think I think that the, this album is a it's more provocative and, and it's, it's frankly more interesting then yeah joe schmo who wants to be like oh, i'm i want to be a stand-up comedian but why can't i say the n-word on stage right, even though can't, I'm white? why can't no, i use up. like this right. or that slur on stage like, and then people are I like think- dude you shouldn't do that and he's like stop policing comedy shut up trent right well you know You're like what's that so funny. much more you know it's so much more interesting is talking about this album yes like you're not it's not that like it's just that that's frankly just so uninteresting at this point you know? Yeah. So like an artist, like in, in the case of this album, like an artist like Paul Simon will get branded by some heavyweight voices as an apartheid apologist because he doesn't necessarily agree with all of the specifics of the directive that they're saying. Like he, you know, he can be like, well, I feel like I'm OK if I go to this country and I only work with the black musicians and I only work to try and empower them and try to to, to mm-hmm. bring their culture outward, you know, and it show it to the rest of the world that, you know, because during this time, I feel like a lot of people, when they thought of Africa, they're just like, oh, starving children dying in a hole. Like, we have to go there. We have to save them, you know. And Right. And and Paul Simon is showing a very different view. Even, you know, on people living under the most oppressive of conditions, that there is joy there, there is culture there, there is beauty there. Um, and maybe it takes a guy like Paul Simon to expose that to them and because, you know, they're not going to go out and seek it. Uh, you know what this kind of makes yeah. me think of? What? Um, this makes me think of a, a, a step or a, a bus stop on my journey of getting out of the IFB. Tell me about uh, it. A place that I kind of passed through a couple of years ago. So uh, uh, the phrase that that we have all heard a million times in reference to the IFB is, you know, do you know for sure, do you know 100% sure if you died today that you would go to heaven? You know, you're, you're expected to be 100% sure about your salvation. You're expected to know the ins and outs of why we don't, you know, for women, we don't wear pants or why we don't listen to music with the evil evil demonic two and four drum beat or why we don't go to movies or why we don't hold hands before we're married or why we don't drink wine or it is like on and on and on you're expected to know the ins and outs of all of these teachings yeah and what that leads you to believe as a child who grows up in that movement is that you're expected to know everything and you can get it can uh, really give you some serious anxiety it'll give you some you, complex too yeah when you don't know like to not know, like I was, so when I first got out of the IFB, I felt like I was incapable of saying the the phrase, I don't know. And it terrified me. Really? Right. So, oh yeah. Like I felt like I was terrified to say, I don't know. Um, Especially about like, okay, is it, is it moral for women to wear pants or not? 
And for me, before I got to the point where I am now, where it's like, of course, it's moral. It's fine. Who cares? Uh, Put clothes on your body. Make yourself happy. Go live your life. Um, But before I got to that point, being in the in the phase where is it moral to put to put to wear pants if you're a woman uh to be in that phase where i had to say i don't know was to, was so terrifying yeah um, it was just so scary and and i think that you know learning to say that you don't know i think for people who weren't raised ifb maybe it applies more to um the, you know the political issues or the the canceling issues that we were talking about a moment ago but for those of us who were raised in the IFB, this can be a, a lesson to us as well, because it can be very, very hard to say that you don't know. And if you don't know something, people can be like, what do you mean you don't know? The information's out there. Like, do the research. Read theory. Like, God. Right. It's like, I okay, like yes. Uh, yes, but I've only had the I've only had the Internet for like three years. OK, right. No, um, but the the the, you know, the connection is, though, that being on one side of a thing or the other side of the thing is is simple yeah um whether you're right or whether you're wrong kind of going all the way one direction and then sticking to it uh, i'm not saying it's easy but it is simple that's often the oh, simple it's incredibly solution easy. and it is often the easy solution it's not always but it's often the easy solution i feel like that's what people do on that's why i have such a huge problem with ideology in general with mm-hmm. with like when I talk about like my political views, people are like, oh, well, what ideology do you follow? I'm like, I don't like ideology because that's like what you're saying. You take something and then you go all the way to that direction and you're like, this is right. I am on the right side of this. And my beliefs reinforce that. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that being anywhere other than yes or no, anywhere other than black or white uh, can be complicated. It can be a lot more difficult and what's really, really hard for a lot of people is saying that that you don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't have all the information yet. Um, that can be really, really difficult. But I think that that one thing that one thing that really comes to light when you talk about this album, um, as well as many other topics, is that sometimes it's worth it to uh, sometimes that nuanced point of view is really, really worth it. Of course, if you have a nuanced point of view, a lot of times people will just like tar you and call you names on Twitter and say, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of all of the political names that I've been called on Twitter. I've been called a fascist. I've been called a Nazi, which was fun. Um, I've been called, uh, let's see, neoliberal shill, uh, leftist, communist, Marxist scum. Um, I've been called a neocon. I've been called ugh, like you know, like every sort of uh, pejorative term that people use for somebody of, of a political ideology that they don't agree with. You know, it's like if right. you don't agree with like the the basic it's you know, it's just like saying I don't agree with the exact fundamentals of the, you know, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Right. If well, you I was going to say follow that then it's very I am much a heathen. <laughs> right. Well, it's very much the same if you're a progressive Christian, because I have massive differences uh usually complete 180 degree differences uh with a lot of christians uh even a lot of catholics i have very very great (laughs) political differences with uh even some moral differences with 
uh, in my views, line up more with people who are progressive and often people who are not religious. <laughs> However, I am religious. So I tend to sometimes I feel like I get it from both sides because um, fellow Christians want to call me immoral or want to call me straight up wrong for the beliefs that I have. Um, so, okay, so recently I got into a, a little tiny beef on Twitter with a, a somebody who who also professes to be Christian uh, over trans identities, trans people. Um, I was saying, oh, like, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was kind of just uh, saying that, you know, the, the trans person that this person was discussing very disrespectfully is a is a person and that we should just use their pronouns and that like their qualification for a job is not based on uh their identity as a trans person their qualification is based on their qualification and that and and this christian person was just kind of attacking me that's a spicy take that you had there (laughs) i know not really such a such a like crazy take i feel like calling somebody by their right pronouns is just like calling somebody by their name yeah that's very much what it is yeah but this this christian person was just attacking me about you know god didn't make that person trans and you know they shouldn't be they shouldn't have a job because of their status as a transgender person and like attacking me because i'm clearly not a christian because i don't believe so they're playing no true scotchman with you people right (laughs) and i'm like so and, and and I know that that reminds that me of some beef that are, I got it. Oh man! Well, people who are progressive would have my back on that, right? Because yeah, you know, people who are you know, well, well, people who are progressive believe, love, and support trans people and use their correct name and pronouns and know that that is just one factor of their life and it doesn't qualify them or disqualify them for a job. Uh, but those same progressive people who agree with me about this trans person who for some reason needed to be the topic of discussion on Twitter that day, they think that I'm backwards and they think that I'm wrong for professing Christianity. So I feel, I feel very, it feels, yeah, it feels very isolating sometimes though, because, because I find value in in the ideas of the Christian faith, but I don't find value in hating trans people. I feel, sometimes I feel like, I don't know enough people who kind of are in that in that position where I am. Well, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who listen to that to this podcast who are in the same exact position as you are. And if you listen to this podcast and you are in the same exact position as Sadie is in, uh, we see you and we appreciate you and you're doing good. This so, has been like a super vulnerable episode, dude. <laughs> this has been a great episode. You know, we came here. We came here to talk about Paul Simon. We came here to talk about apartheid. We came here to talk about uh pop music and we ended up talking about so 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 much more um but i think that's all the time that we have for today this has been probably one of my favorite homework episodes that we have ever done well the last one that we did was probably my favorite one so really the um, captain bl- underpants one. no, no the Sheffy Sheffy. One. Sheffy. but uh, i'm but i'm glad that we got that um glad that you got that experience as well and sadly, this is the last homework episode that we're going to be doing for several months. I think probably two months. We'll probably have the next one coming out in May because we have Sadie, as you no doubt know, if you've gotten this far into the show, is very much with child. Uh, she 
you know, and and so at the time that this the child that has the hiccups out, right now, yeah, child, that God. child. <laughs> that sounds unpleasant. Yeah, it's um, not that bad. So the child that shall uh, uh, be emerging from her womb into the world. Uh, very very soon so what we have done but we plan to give her quite a bit of time off but in order for us to keep coming out with episodes we have to pre-record a ton of episodes and then just have them scheduled so we can't really just be like oh do you want to review something this week so we're going to cut back to doing one episode a week instead of two uh and if you don't like it well we've spoiled you so yeah we uh, will pick back up with homework um, probably may yeah, at some point after the after the baby comes, when we yeah. get the baby on a well, when I get the baby on a good schedule and find out if they will sleep through recording an episode or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll have to we'll we'll have to figure something out, but that'll be fine. Uh, anyway, uh, until that time, uh, you can still listen to our regular episodes, which will be coming out every single Monday, uh, and. That is extremely excited. Uh, and uh, until then, until you hear our next episode, uh, this has been the Leaving Eden podcast. You can follow the Leaving Eden podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. If you have any ideas for us for episodes, anything that you think that we should talk about, you can post it in our Facebook group. You can, you know, message us on social media or you can send it to us in an email at Leaving Eden Pod at gmail.com. Sadie, would you like to plug your social media? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell yes Sadie, uh, or on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. I've given up on trying to find a cool name. There is there is one more new social media app that Sadie and I are both on because we are very cool and you can follow both <laughs> of us there. I know you're scoffing right now, but this this app is like I See, love I this app. Like I haven't messed with it yet because it was the weekend. I'm telling you, okay, Sadie and I are both on Clubhouse now. That's right. We're on Clubhouse. We got the invites. And if you're cool enough to have an invite, then, and you have an iPhone, then you can follow us on Clubhouse. And we plan sometime in the future, we're going to, you know, host a room on, host some rooms on Clubhouse and talk about stuff. Uh, and you can, you know, maybe we'll have like an interfaith, a solidarity room or something you can just come and talk to us we'll have great conversations on there uh sadie what's your clubhouse handle is it hell yeah sadie yeah it's the same as my twitter yeah and my handle on uh on clubhouse is the same as all of my other handles which is at g-a-v-r-i-e-l-h-a-c-o-h-e-n if you want to listen to stream download uh, a buy the song that is playing right now you can go to my spotify page or my apple music page or whatever music service that you do it's at gavriel ha cohen and you can download it there and stream it there and that's going to be super fun make sure you listen to that uh if you like it and until next time uh we hope you have a good day bye-bye Let's
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.